All right, Galatians chapter number six. Galatians chapter number six in your Bibles. I'm so glad to be here. I love being around young people, college students, and I'm just grateful for that. I love sitting with you and talking with you and eating with you and eating with you. <laughs> I, uh, um, I love being a pastor. I've uh, really only had three jobs in my life, and I really love being a pastor. Uh, I'm grateful the Lord called me to preach. <clears throat> I think I told you we started our church outside of Fort Campbell, and our first Sunday was the week of 9 11. And uh, um, I'd never been in the ministry before, and so I really, you know, was learning by, you know, just going out and knocking on doors and soul winning and, and discipleship and visitation and preaching. And, and I remember we would have a series of meetings leading up to our first Sunday. Uh, I started a brand new church, and uh, um, so we would have a series of meetings on Thursday nights. We had about three weeks worth of meetings, and we would invite people to come to these meetings and hope that would build up to our first Sunday. And so I remember one night we had this meeting, and I was talking about, you know, my family. This is who we are. This is what God has called us to do. We'd love for you to come be a part of it. And we had a, a, uh, an older gentleman come. He must have been close to 80 years old. And a younger woman with him, and come to find out that was his wife, and she was probably 40 years younger than him, a Filipino. And so uh, they were there at the meeting, and, and after the meeting we had refreshments, and, and my wife was talking to this woman, and that woman was just weeping, and you know, something about marriage problems, and divorce, and alcohol, and, and afterwards my wife came to me, and she said, uh, honey, they asked if you could come and visit them. And I'm thinking, my first in-home counseling session as a pastor. So I came with my Bible tucked under my arm, and I went and knocked on the door. And a young man answered the door. Oh, he was, you know, in his early 20s, and he answered the door. And, and he said, oh, we're so glad you're here. We've been expecting you. Come on in. And so I came in, and I sat down. And, and uh, the wife came in the room, and she sat down. And the young man came over there, and uh, he sat down next to her, and then uh, the husband came in, and he sat in a chair across the living room. And I'm sitting there for a few minutes, and did you ever get the feeling something's not right? <laughs> and, and so I said, <clears throat> uh, so what's the relationship here? And the woman spoke up, and she said, well, this is my husband, and then she pointed to the young man sitting next to her and she said, and this is my fiance. And I'm thinking, welcome to Kentucky. <laughs> I left the FAA for this? <laughs> exciting days, my friend, exciting days. That's all I've got to tell you. Uh, it, it was a mess. I'd like to give you good news, but that was just ugly. That's all I can tell you about that one. But we saw so many adults saved and baptized and discipled and still serving the Lord today uh, from those 18 years there. I remember uh, one Sunday or Saturday, we were out knocking on doors, and uh, we met a young couple who uh, lived in the subdivision right behind the church. And uh, they had just had a baby, and so we invited them to church, and they said, you know, we haven't been to church in a long time, and uh, we know we've got a little girl here, and we know we need to be in church. And so they came that next day. And I preached uh, that day, and 
I shared the story about my brother that I shared with you yesterday. About he, he died of a heart attack at 46 years old, and he's in heaven. Love the Lord. And I shared that story, and then um, I uh, gave the invitation, and the husband and the wife raised their hand for salvation, but they did not come forward. So after church, we're standing back in the back talking, and he said, you know, I appreciate that story you said about your brother. He said, my sister died in a motorcycle accident. He said, but I know she's a Christian, and I know she's in heaven. Now remember, he raised his hand saying he wasn't a Christian. And I said, but you don't know if you're ever going to see your sister again, do you? And he said, no, sir. And I said, and you're okay with that? And he said, no, sir, I'm not. I need to get saved. And his wife said, I need to get saved too. And they got saved right there. And the Lord allowed me to lead them to the Lord. And that was a real exciting time. It was a blessing. And then the next week we were out door knocking on the other side of town. And uh, we met this, this older woman. And she um, was having a real hard time. Her husband had cancer. Uh, they hadn't been in church for a while. And she knew she needed to be in church. And so she came that next day. And so um, uh, she came forward, or she came in to the parking lot. I saw her. I went out to the parking lot and I met her. And I said, I'm so glad you're here today. And we were talking about her husband. And I stopped right there in the parking lot and I prayed for her about her husband. Well, she came in and the Lord gave us such a wonderful day. We had seven adults saved that day. It was just amazing. I've never had that happen since. And so uh, she was one of the adults who got saved. And she came forward and, and we dealt with her. And after church, I'm standing there talking to her. And remember that young couple I told you the week before that had gotten saved? They came back that day. And so they were standing in the back talking. I'm talking to this woman here and she's talking to me. And she looks and she sees that young couple. And she stops and she said, how long has that couple been coming to your church? And I said, well, they just started coming last Sunday. She goes, that's my son. Isn't that amazing? So then after church, I'm talking to the son, and he said, preacher, I need you to pray for my dad. My dad's got cancer. He's, he's in the hospital, and, and uh, he's not a Christian. And I said, well, let's pray for your dad right now. He, so we prayed, and he said, preacher, I think if you go visit my dad, he'll get saved. Well, that's like sick unto a dog. You know what I mean? Now, I'm going to tell you, what I do in situations like that, I'll typically, I'll take one of the men of the church with me, and we'll go and we'll, we'll uh, uh, visit, and I'll start talking to them about the things of God. And if I feel like it's really an open door, a lot of times I'll turn it over to the person who's with me so they can see somebody saved and just try to encourage them and help them on their way. And, and so my son-in-law, who's now the pastor of that church, he wasn't going to our church at the time, but he was in town with me. And I'm thinking, this would be a real great opportunity for my son-in-law. So I said, hey, Paul, let's go up to the hospital. Let's go make a visit. So we go up to the hospital, and uh, we go in the room, and there's Dad laid in the hospital bed, and there's his wife who had just gotten saved, and she's sitting next to him. And, and we're talking, and I'm telling him the story. I said, I, I, I'm Brother Shaver. I'm Pastor Shaver. He said, I know who you are. Is that a good thing? You know, I, you know, when they make a statement like that, I'm not sure where I am on that one, you know. So I, I, I tell him the story that I just told you about his son and his daughter-in-law and about his wife. And, and you could just see, you know, he's just tears are running down his cheeks. And so I asked him, I said, who needs to get saved now? And he said, I do, preacher. 
And my son-in-law is standing right there, and I forgot all about him. I just went right and led him to the Lord, man. I just, but he got saved. It was just, they were such exciting times. And can I tell you something? We live in exciting days. And God wants to work in you, but he wants to work through you as well. Now that, that is awe-inspiring for me. Why would God? want to use us. And I'm so humbled and I'm so grateful for that. So don't forget the fact that God wants to use you. And we rest in that and we're excited about that. Look at Galatians. Look at chapter number 6. It's a very familiar passage, but I want to uh, build on this. I, I was thinking about this last night and, and I went back and I wrote this sermon last night in my hotel. And um, well, there wasn't anything on TV last night worth watching, so I just, uh, isn't that right, brother? <laughs> so, uh, so I, um, <laughs> so, uh, but um, uh, look at Galatians 6, look at verse number 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. So I want to talk to you for the next few minutes on the issue of leave no man behind. Leave no man behind. Pray with me, would you, Lord? We desperately need your help right now. And God, if anything good is going to happen in this next hour, it's going to be because of you. And so I yield myself to you and I beg you for your help and for your power. And God, we ask you for your presence. Lord, you've promised us your presence in this crowd. But Lord, we want you to know we want that. We want you here. We want you to demonstrate your presence and your power to us. Do something today, Lord, where we just have to stop and say this was God. And Father, we'll give you all the glory for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In Galatians uh, chapter number 5, at the end of the chapter, Paul's talking about, he's talking to the church about the fruit of the Spirit. He's showing the church at Galatia the difference between someone who has the works of the flesh as compared to someone who demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit. Then in chapter 6, he stops talking about the principle and he starts demonstrating it or illustrating it through this hypothetical man that uh, uh, we, we see. I was in the military for 14 years. I flew helicopters. Uh, for, for pilots, I was an air traffic controller. We had the same principles in air traffic controller. Uh, we would call it, in air traffic control, we'd call it sector resource management. You'd have the controller, you had the assistant controller, and they had to work as one. Uh, they just had to be together in their communication with the airplane, in their communication with the computer, in their communication with the adjacent sectors. Uh, that were going on. We just had to communicate with them. And in aircraft, we call it cockpit resource management. 
and we would talk about the division of responsibilities. There's a story, I think it was an Eastern uh, Airlines flight, I think, don't, don't hold me to that, in Florida, where they had the uh, uh, landing gear had gone down, but they had a problem with the light. And it wasn't a problem with the landing gear, but there was a problem with the light. And so they had the pilot and the co-pilot and the flight engineer there, <clears throat> and they're trying to get this light taken care of because if they don't get the light taken care of, they have to declare emergency. And I can tell you from experience, it's just a mess when you have to declare an emergency. You know, now sure beats the alternative, but um, so 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 they had to would have to declare an emergency, and obviously the pilot in command really didn't want to do that. And so they're trying to get this light fixed, and they're trying to get it adjusted, and they're so focused on the light that they're not paying attention to what the aircraft's doing. And next thing you know, an alarm goes off, and they are so detached from the situation, they don't even... It, it's not immediately, they're not immediately impacted by the fact that that alarm was the low altitude warning alarm. They were so low, the low altitude warning alarm went off and it, they, they, they were so detached from that, they didn't realize what was going on. And next thing you know, they crashed into the swamp in Florida and everybody died. So they start talking about Cockpit resource management, it's interesting. Um, There's an Asian uh, country that had a lot, I think it was Korea, a lot, a lot, a lot of airline incidents. And one of the problems was their culture. Because in their Korean culture, the elders are almost treated as royalty. You don't question them. You don't challenge them. And in a cockpit, that doesn't work. And so there were numerous incidents that would take place in the cockpit of that aircraft because the co-pilot was so intimidated by this senior pilot, he wouldn't question anything. He wouldn't say a word. He wouldn't ask anything. He wouldn't make any recommendations. You know, because this man had a godlike status in, in, in his life. And so he wouldn't do that. So they actually hired a man from the United States to come over and say, you, you need to fix this problem. So one of the first things he did was, when they got into the cockpit, they only allowed the flight crew to use first names. To try to break down those cultural barriers so they could improve that cockpit resource management. In the military, on the ground, the term is, they're your battle buddy. They're the guy you look out for. I, I've shared this story that um, I'm not a Hollywood guy, but uh, Mark Bowden wrote a book on the Somali incident called Black Hawk Down. And uh, he talks in there about one of the men who was a, a special forces operator who now, unless he is recently retired, works at a, a VA clinic in Georgia outside of Atlanta. And uh, his name's Hoot. And he, as a special operations guy, 
was talking to one of the local rangers there. There's a difference. I don't want to take the time to explain it. There's just a difference in functions between the rangers and the SF guys. And the SF guys, I just have to say, they're more elite, you know. And so um, they were talking. And Hoot said, you know, he said, um, I, I don't talk about what I do back home. And uh, the, uh, the other man, uh, Eversman, I think was his name, and that's his real name, he said, um, uh, why, why don't you talk about what you do back home? And Hoot said, because they won't understand. He said, they won't understand why we do it. They won't understand that it's about the man next to you. And that's it. His battle buddy. Now, we are in a war. We're in a war against Satan. We're in a war against the world. We're in a war against our own flesh. And the problem is, if we're not careful, we're going to have this go-it-alone mentality, which I believe, according to the Word of God, is self-destructive. And we need to talk about that as we're starting this new semester. There's some things I think that we need to see uh, if we're not going to leave anyone behind. Number one, leave no man behind means we seek for the individual overtaken in a fault. In the Christian community, leaving no man behind means we're going to seek for the individual overtaken in a fault. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. That word overtaken, the picture there is they've been caught from behind. They've been surprised. They weren't anticipating this problem. Well, uh, the preacher last night talked about David. David did not anticipate, I believe. Nothing I read leads me to believe that David knew what he was getting into uh, leading up to the events with Bathsheba. He was overtaken in a fault. If a man be overtaken in a fault, we have a responsibility to seek for that guy. Now listen, this means after they've been overtaken. What, what I mean by that is, and we're going to talk about this a little more in a, a few minutes, but uh, because they've been overtaken, that's not the time to cast them aside. Because they've been overcome they've been cut from behind that's not the time to to pull away and disassociate ourselves from them now there's a process and I'm sure there's a process here at the college that I I don't want to uh, get in the way of here but you and I have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters around us even when they are overtaken in a fault we've got to be aware of that the person in your dorm the person in your class, the person in your ministry, the person you sit next to in the choir or in the orchestra, we've got to be aware, we've got to know where they are in this journey with Christ. It's the same way the Lord Jesus responded when he left the 90 and 9. We do not leave them on their own. I understand, look at verse number 5 in Galatians chapter number 6. I, I don't want to neglect this because this is exactly what Brother Ingram was talking about last night. Uh, verse number 5, for every man shall bear his own burden. 
Christianity is an individual responsibility. And I love the way the preacher said it last night. We, we're not going to blame a pastor. We're not going to blame a youth director. We're not going to blame a Christian school teacher. We're not going to blame our mom and dad. We're not going to blame a coworker or our boss. My relationship with God is my responsibility. But at the same time, at the same time, my relationship with God is my responsibility. Your relationship with God should be important to me as well. Same with the person sitting next to you. We can't. We can't be so myopic that we just think it's all about us. How well I do. How good my grades are. How much I stand out. I have a biblical responsibility to look out for the man or the woman that the Lord has given next to me. I've got a responsibility to do that. I've been married 40 years. And I've got a responsibility to look out for my wife. Six years ago, and I shared this with you, she was touched with Guillain-Barre. Guillain-Barre is an autoimmune disease that attacks the nervous system and it eats the nerves away in the body. It starts at the feet and it destroys the myelin sheathing, which is the insulation around the nerves. And then it starts working its way up the body, a four-week attack I mentioned, followed by a four-year recovery and, and uh, it left her paralyzed. She was in the hospital for two months. She had to learn to stand again, to sit again, to chew again, to walk again. After about four weeks, it gets up to your lungs. And that's where it gets to the critical point. Because if it gets much worse, then they have to intubate. And the risk of fatality increases significantly if it gets to that point. And I was in ICU, the neurological ICU with my wife when she got to that point. And you want to talk about helpless. All you can do is sit and pray. That's all you can do. And I sat and I prayed. And I got everybody I knew to pray. And I'm watching those numbers go down and go down and the uh, the doctor, the neurologist comes in and he said, Mr. Shaver, if this gets any lower, we're going to have to intubate. And I can't do anything. And so it got lower. And you know, Lord, whatever you ask, the answer is yes. And the neurologist comes in and he sees the number. And as he's there talking to me, the number went up just a little bit. Just a little bit. And he said, you know what? Let, let's hold off. And we held off. I still get emotional thinking about it. And so after two months, my wife came home from the hospital. And I had to do everything for my wife. I had to cook the meals. May God have mercy on our souls. <laughs> I had to uh, clean the house. I had to feed my wife. I had to 
carry my wife. Um, I had to uh, take care of all my wife's needs for her. I had to do the laundry. I had to do the laundry. (laughs) So that picture comes into my mind when it talks about bearing one another's burdens. And that's the responsibility that I have. And that's the responsibility that you have. I'm I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Leave, Leave no man behind means we seek for the individual overtaken in a fault. The Christian life is the responsibility of us all. It's the responsibility of us to seek for the individual who's been overtaken, who's been overcome, who's been overrun, who has fallen. And we can leave no man behind. If someone is struggling, if someone is hurting, if someone is falling, if someone is failing. Uh, the church I was in in Oklahoma, uh, the pastor is an ex, was an ex uh, Green Berets in heaven now, and he was in Laos in the 50s when you weren't supposed to be in Laos. And he lived among the Mio people who are now referred to as the Hmong. I don't know about if there's much of a Hmong population here, but, but uh, he has a great tenderness for the Hmong community and for veterans in, in, you know, in general. And Veterans Day at our church in Oklahoma was a big deal. And he would bring in a Medal of Honor recipient every year. Every so often they would be saved, but most of the time they were lost men who ended up getting saved. Uh, David Mad Dog Dolby, I still remember talking to him. Man, he was so messed up. He uh, was in Vietnam and and, uh, he came back with a body count because that's all they cared about was a body count. And he came back with a body count and his battalion commander didn't believe him, called him a liar. So the next time he went out, he came back with the patches off the shoulders of the Vietnamese soldiers. And he still said, oh, you could get those from anywhere. So the next time he came back with his helicopter, he hovered over to the battalion commander and he started throwing bodies off the aircraft. And he said, stop, I believe you now, I believe you. And uh, uh, Mad Dog Dolby was a Medal of Honor recipient. Uh, President Johnson pinned the medal on him and uh, they always ask him, uh, what do you want? Sergeant Dolby, what do you want? He said, I want to go back to Vietnam. And they typically don't do that because the chance of them getting killed is high. And that's just, honestly, it's just bad PR. So they don't do that. And, um, but he let him go back. And it just, mentally, it just messed with him so bad. And when we met with him, you know, he got saved. But it did not change all the PTSD issues that he'd been dealing with during that time. There's a Medal of Honor recipient in World War II whose name was Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss was a conscientious objector. He didn't believe in fighting. During the Battle of Okinawa, he saved the lives of 50 to 100 wounded infantrymen atop the area known by the 96th Division as the Meta Escarpment uh, or Hacksaw Ridge. He was wounded four times in Okinawa and was evacuated on May 21, 1945, aboard the USS Mercy. Doss suffered a left arm fracture from a sniper's bullet while being carried back to Allied lines, and at one point had 17 pieces of shrapnel 
embedded in his body after a failed attempt at kicking a grenade away from him and his men. He was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions in Okinawa. Let me read the, the uh, citation. He was a company aid man when the 1st Battalion assaulted a jagged escarpment 400 feet high. As our troops gained the summit, a heavy concentration of artillery, mortar, and machine gun fire crashed into them, inflicting approximately 75 casualties and driving the others back. Private First Class Doss refused to seek cover and remained in the fire-swept area with the many stricken, carrying them one by one to the edge of the escarpment and there lowering them on a rope-supported litter down the face of a cliff to friendly hands. On May 2nd, he exposed himself to a heavy rifle and mortar fire in rescuing a wounded man 200 yards forward of the lines on the same escarpment. And two days later, he treated four men who had been cut down while assaulting a strongly defended cave, advancing through a shower of grenades to within eight yards of enemy forces in a cave's mouth where he dressed the, his comrades' wounds before making four separate trips under fire to evacuate them to safety. On May 5th, he unhesitatingly braved enemy shelling and small arms fire to assist an artillery officer. He applied bandages, moved his patient to a spot that offered protection from small arms fire, and while artillery and mortar shells fell close by, painstakingly administered plaza. Later that day, when an American was severely wounded by fire from a cave, Private First Class Doss crawled to him where he had fallen 25 feet from the enemy position, rendered aid, and carried him 100 yards to safety while continually exposed to enemy fire. On 21 May, in a night attack on high ground near Shuri, he remained in exposed territory while the rest of the company took cover, fearlessly risking the chance that he would be mistaken for an infiltrating Japanese and giving aid to the injured until he himself was seriously wounded in the legs by the explosion of a grenade. Rather than call another aid man from cover, he cared for his own injuries and waited five hours before litter bearers reached him and started carrying him to cover. The trio was caught in an enemy tank attack and Private First Class Dawks, seeing a more critically wounded man nearby, crawled off the litter and directed the bears to give their first attention to the other man. Awaiting the litter bearer's return, he was again struck, this time suffering a compound fracture in one arm. With magnificent fortitude, he bound a rifle stock to his shattered arm as a splint and then crawled 300 yards over rough terrain to the aid station. Through his outstanding bravery and unflinching determination in the face of desperately dangerous conditions, Private First Class Doss saved the lives of many soldiers. His name became a symbol throughout the 77th Infantry Division for outstanding gallantry far and above, far above and beyond the call of duty signed Harry S. Truman, President. Now why won't we do that for our brothers and sisters in Christ? The Christian life is about relationship. It starts with this relationship here. 
but it is demonstrated through this relationship here. And many of us, we need to make this the priority, but some of us focus all of our attention on this while totally neglecting this. Some of us have the opposite problem. We focus all of our attention on this while not being plugged into the source of our power and our strength and our victory. And eventually, the power runs out. It's both. This relationship with my Heavenly Father is the priority, and it is this relationship that enables me to help my brother and sister in Christ who have fallen. And we cannot forget that. We cannot neglect that. L listen, my wife comes from a broken home. I come from a leave-it-to-beaver home. My wife comes from a broken home. We look at relationships differently. But when you get into ministry, you're going to be dealing with people who have a warped perspective of relationship. You'll try to love them and they won't know how to respond. Or they won't trust you. Or they will respond in hurt or in anger. We had a, a, a lab that had uh, jumped the fence and met another dog out on the road in front of our house, US-41. We lived on US-41 in Hopkinsville. And met another dog. Those two dogs were sitting in the road and a pickup truck came by and hit both those dogs. Killed our dog instantly. The other dog was wounded. And I'm trying to get that dog out of the road before another vehicle comes. And when I get up to that dog, that dog turned and attacked me. Do you know why? Because hurting animals hurt. And hurting people hurt people. Do, do you understand that statement? So when we're help, trying to help a brother or sister, it's not going to be easy. I mentioned this last night. People aren't going to fall on their face crying out with joy that the man of God or the woman of God has appeared on the scene. But it is our biblical responsibility to reach out to them. I said, number one, uh, leave no man behind means we seek for the individual overtaken in a fault. Number two, leave no man behind means we seek to restore the fallen individual. Look again what it says. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. It's interesting when we talk about um, uh, verse number two, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The term restore refers to the setting of a fractured bone. We cannot ignore it. We cannot neglect it. Have you ever, you ever dealt with somebody who's had a broken arm or some kind of a wound that has healed wrongly? A friend of mine, pastors outside of Detroit, and he was involved in an accident as a little boy. You know those playground rides we used to ride all the time that would just had the bars and you'd hang on to them and they'd spin around and it was, you know, death in, a, in metal is what it was. And you'd try to get that thing going at light speed as it's going around in circles and bodies would go flying off and that was so much fun. <laughs> well, his arm got caught. And his arm got totally mangled up. And it was never the same. 
to this day. It's been 50 years ago. Never the same. And it's healed that way. And to him now, this abnormality is normal. And the problem is, if we're not careful about this issue of restoration, people who have been dealing with hurts, people who have been dealing with failures, people who have been dealing with wounds, they will heal wrongly. And they'll never be the same. And it is, it is our biblical command to help to get that bone set so that it heals properly. Now, God in his mercy has given staff here to lead in that, to help in that. But we cannot neglect our own personal responsibility to understand the objective is restoration. The other thing that it says about that is not only do we restore them, we have to restore them in a a spirit of meekness, not in a spirit of superiority. You know, I, I, I make this statement. If I saw my sin the way I see other people's sin, it would change the way that I see my sin. And somehow we've gotten this mindset that because it's somebody else, it's so much worse. When really, don't you think it should be the opposite? I tell our church, if I saw my sin the way God sees my sin, it would significantly affect my response and my approach to my sin. And too many of God's people, we don't do that. And so as a result of that, when somebody has fallen, instead of having a spirit of meekness, we have a spirit of superiority, and that doesn't help anybody. Nobody wants help from someone like that. And so we've got bloodied and bruised and broken bodies all around us. Leave no man behind means we seek to restore the fallen individual. Number three, and I'll be done. Leave no man behind means we bear one another's burdens. Look again at what it says. Verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's interesting that term one another is not an isolated term. The Bible tells us to love one another. The Bible tells us to pray for one another. The Bible tells us to edify one another. To prefer one another to use hospitality one for another, and here, to bear one another's burdens. The Christ life is about one another. We are one body. And if someone's been overtaken at a fault, we have bones that are broken in our body. I... uh, Lost an engine in, in uh, one of my helicopters that I was flying. I've only had a couple of incidents. I lost my hydraulics, which had the potential for a, a lot of damage, but we were fortunate. 
It was hard to control the aircraft. It looked like we were landing a 747 because instead of coming down like this, we were just trying to make the minimum adjustments to our controls as possible and uh, uh, ran it down to the ground. I've lost a tail rotor gearbox, which after the fact scared the dog out of me. Uh, because the only indication I had was in an intermediate gearbox chip light. A chip light is, they've got like magnets in the gearbox, and if there's metal shavings, they get attached to those magnets, which causes the light to go on. The emergency procedure is land as soon as practicable. And here's what that means. There's land immediately. For example, if you lose your engine, guess what? You're going to land immediately. <laughs> Look out! <laughs> uh, then there's land as soon as possible. So instead of come crashing down wherever this thing's going to take you, you're looking for a field. It may be right here, maybe right over there. So you're going to land as soon as possible. Land as soon as practical means find an airfield, the closest airfield, and go ahead and land. Well, we had just taken off out of the traffic pattern. We just dropped down. Remember, I told you all our flying's at or below treetop level. And, and so we're, we, we had just gotten down under the trees when the chip light came on. I thought, okay, well, let's just circle around and take it back. And so we circled around and we took it back and, and we um, uh, landed and took it to the pad and shut it down. And I did my post-flight inspection. And there's the intermediate gearbox. So here's the tail boom and it goes up. Uh, to the tail of the aircraft, right there, that gearbox. And there was fluid and pieces all over the side of the aircraft. Now, the question I've never been able to answer is, how did that gearbox even work? And sometimes I don't like to think about that because I don't sleep well after that. So I've had the, then one time I lost an engine. And we were full. When you're flying and you're landing in the woods, uh, you have what's called the point of, uh, uh, point of decision um, uh, where once you get below the trees, you have to take it to the ground. And so I was just coming down to that point and I lost an engine. Now I had a, a helicopter. I had a Blackhawk, two engines. But I was full. I was heavy. So now I'm committed and I'm going down and I hit it into the ground and when I hit it, it hit hard. Not even hard enough to blow out the uh, struts, the shocks on the gear, but hard enough that I felt a tweak in my back. And it's like, oh, like a pinch. And it never went away. So I went to the doctor, found out I, you know, I've got a uh, broken back down here. They want to cut on. I told him when I'm dragging my leg behind me, that's when I'll let you cut on my back. So, so I, you know, <laughs> I mean, and I don't want them cutting on my back, you know, but if one of our bones is broken in our body, it affects our whole body. That's the way it is with the family of God. When one of us has fallen, when one of us is hurting, it should affect us. We should feel that. It should break us. We should be hurting as well. 
I told you the story about the tornado that came through and that young man. Then I think about that, I just weep. Someone's suffering. It should affect us all. We are one family. I'm one of five boys in my family. We didn't want to have any girls and spoil a good thing. I have four children. I have, I've lost count how many grandchildren. I think 20 today, maybe 21 tomorrow. But um, if one of my family members is hurt, it, it hurts. And it should affect my appetite. Are you with me on that? It should affect my sleep. It should affect my concentration. It should affect my prayer life. Because one of my family is hurting. Because one of my family has fallen. Because one of my family has been caught from behind. And if we're not careful, we'll just look and say, oh, well. Or God help us, we'll look and we'll say, yeah, I saw that coming. And we didn't do anything about it. We are looking for those who are having a hard time. We put on ourselves the burden that has caused someone to go down under a load. That's what that means, to bear one another's burdens. We see that load is taking them down, and we come alongside and we put that burden, anything we can do to help carry that burden. Do you even know what burdens that person sitting next to you is carrying? What burdens? your roommate's carrying. Do we even know? I mentioned about Black Hawk Down and two of the pilots that were killed, there were three pilots killed, two of them were friends of mine. I flew with Cliff Walcott. They called him Elvis, I never called him Elvis. Uh, I flew with him for a year. Ray Frank, I flew with Ray for four years. He was Mike Durant's co-pilot. Mike is running for the Senate in uh, uh, Alabama right now. And Ray was Mike's co-pilot. I flew with Ray for four years, best pilot I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, Ray and Mike's aircraft went down. And uh, the Somalis, who were high on cot, um, hash, basically, they couldn't feel any pain. So if they got shot, they just kept on coming. And that's what happened to my friend Ray. Ray had broken his back in a flight earlier, uh, a lot worse than mine. But um, he uh, uh, had just gotten back on flight status, and so when they crashed, it broke again. And so um, you, he just screamed. And he grabbed his gun, and the skinnies, as they called him, were coming after him, and they just started shooting him, and they just kept coming and coming until they got to my friend Ray and they killed him. And Mike Durant was there and Mike Durant ran out of ammunition but they didn't kill him because they saw him as money. 
They could use him as ransom. There were two SF guys up in the sky. Gary Gordon and Randy Shuggart. And they requested permission to go down and get Mike. And they were denied because the Somalis had overrun them so bad. So they requested permission again and they were denied again. And they requested permission again and the commander said, fellas, I need you to understand what you're asking here. And they said, we understand. And I would like to tell you that those two guys went down there and they rescued Mike Duran and they carried him off to safety. But both of those men were killed. They both became recipients of the highest award in the military, the Congressional Medal of Honor. Now here's the difference. You and I have got to be plugged into the source of our power and make sure that while we are helping that brother or sister who are overtaken in a fault, that spiritually speaking, we don't sacrifice ourselves like those two men did. Do you understand? It's important you understand this. Nod your head up and down if you understand what I'm saying. You and I have got to make sure that while we're helping our brothers and sisters who are overtaken, that we are where we need to be in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. Because the term here is, you which are spiritual, restore such in one. So there's two challenges this morning, and I'll be done. Number one, are you spiritual? Are you spiritual? Are you spiritually in a position that if a brother or sister were to fall, you could help them? Are you spiritual? Number two, are you aware? We talk about making sure that we are all in, which is so important. We talk about making sure that God is in control of our lives. We talk about being fully surrendered. And I'm asking you, while you're doing those things, are you aware of what's going on around you? Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray.